Again, let me extend a warm welcome to anyone who is visiting with us this day and encourage you, if you do not have a Bible, to look around. Uh, Don't take anyone else's. You will find Bibles under the chairs scattered throughout the auditorium. You might need to stretch to get one or ask someone to pass one to you, but please do that as I invite you, encourage you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. As you're making your way there, let me ask you, and at the outset, let me make it clear, I'm speaking exclusively for the moment to to Christians. Uh, Let me ask you, as as a Christian, assuming you are a Christian, which of the following word pictures best describes how you became a Christian? You understand the question? I'm going to give you two word pictures, and I want you to choose which of the two best describes how you think you became a Christian. Here is word picture number one. There is a man drowning in the middle of the ocean. A ship passes by. Another man throws to him a life preserver. And the drowning man reaches out, grabs the life preserver, and after which the man on the ship proceeds to drag him to the safety of the ship. That is word picture number one. Here is word picture number two. There is a man dead, face down in the water. A ship happens by. A man sees this body face down in the water, dives into the water, swims to the body, drags the body to the boat, and then miraculously restores life to that dead body. Which of the two word pictures best describes how you became a Christian? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. While ignoring Norm, I'll tell you (laughs) that for years, I was all over word picture number one. And then it was an epiphany. Then an actual fact, I, for many years, was like a dead man lying face down in the water until the Lord Jesus Christ miraculously saved me. Harry Ironside. A great Bible teacher told a story about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. He told how God had sought him out and found him, how God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, and cleansed him. A great witness to the grace, the power, and the glory of God. But after the meeting, a man took him aside and criticized his testimony. He said, I appreciated all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, yes, the older Christian said, I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. And God's part was running after me until he caught me. If we understand the truth of that, we understand a great deal about the true gospel. All of us have run away. But God has set his gracious love upon us, predestined us to become like Jesus Christ, called us to faith and repentance, justified us, adopted us as his spiritual sons and daughters, begun a work of sanctification within us, and has even glorified us. So certain of completion is his plan. And that brings us perfectly, does it not, to our text in Romans chapter 8. And I invite you to follow along as I read verses 28 through 30. 
Please bear in mind, please bear in mind the context. As far back as verse 17, Paul has introduced the reality of suffering in the life of the believer. How do we cope? He gives us three great helps. The first, the hope of glory, verses 18 through 25. The second, the power of prayer, verses 26 and 27. And the third, the sovereignty of God, verses 28 through 30. Here is what Paul says. Listen carefully. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we are working our way backwards through these verses. And so two Sundays ago, we considered this theme of glorification. Last Sunday, working backwards, we considered the theme of justification. And now today, we arrive at the middle link in this golden chain of salvation. God foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. Here we are, this middle link in which the eternal purpose of God breaks into time, our very experience. God called us. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now I'm going to take this little instrument here, and I'm going to push a button. Did something appear behind me on the screen? Excellent. (laughs) To understand, I hope it's what I'm expecting. Yes, excellent. (laughs) To understand Paul's point in those verses, we we need to clear things up right at the outset. Uh, This term, call, if not rightly perceived, rightly understood, is going to be a stumbling block for us. And the way in which we need to clear this up is by acknowledging, acknowledging what the Bible makes clear. There are two distinct, different calls articulated in Scripture. Uh, the first is something what we, that we might call the general call. That word isn't biblical. It's just to, to capture the idea, to express the idea. The general call, it's external. In other words, it's something that happens outside of us. It is, simply put, the proclamation of God's word by the preacher. It is heard with the ear. In other words, you know what it is? It's what I'm doing right now. This is the general call. I'm standing up here before you. I am opening God's word. I am proclaiming God's word. Inherent to God's word is an invitation. Inherent to God's word, the gospel message is a command. Inherent to God's message, the gospel, there is a requirement. It is a general call. Right now, at this very moment, you are hearing it with your ear. All right? That is the general call. We read of it throughout the Bible. There's a great text. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. The Lord Jesus himself. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's another great one. John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, again the words of the Lord Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Here's another good one out of Acts 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. That is a general call. Right now, any unbelievers here? Not to put up your hand. I'm just, if you're an unbeliever sitting right here, this very moment, I am making a call. As I proclaim the word of God, and as I declare God is holy, you are not. As I declare there is a day of judgment coming, 
as I declare, there's a day of judgment coming in which God will reveal the deepest, innermost secrets of your heart. How scandalous that will be. And he will judge you accordingly. And my friend, you will be found wanting. You better get right now. You need a savior. And there is only one savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he alone has propitiated an angry God. And you better be in Christ because, my friend, understand me, you do not want to fall into the hands of an angry God and face a lost eternity in a place, literal place, called hell. The call goes out. Anyone who is thirsty, the weary and heavy laden, proclaims the Lord Jesus, you come unto me, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find forgiveness of sins. Am I clear? That is a call that we proclaim promiscuously to all men without any equivocation at all. Scripture, the invitation is made clear. Whosoever will may come. That's the general call. It's not what Paul's talking about in our text, is it? It's obvious. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Work backwards. Has God glorified everybody? No. Only those whom he's justified. Has he justified everybody? No. Only those whom he has called. Well, if Paul is talking about the general call, what does that mean? It means everybody is justified. And it means everyone is glorified. So it just cannot be what Paul means in the text. We need to be honest with the text. He's clearly not speaking of the general call, invitation to salvation that goes out to all people. He has a different call in view. Here we go. It is what we call, or term rather, the special call. It isn't external. It is internal. It isn't simply the proclamation of God's word by a preacher. It is the application of God's word by the Holy Spirit. And it is heard not merely with the human ear. It is heard with the soul. Paul has already made reference to it in this epistle. Way back in chapter 1, look at what he says. You who are called, he's writing to Christians. You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so we have over here a general call. External. The proclamation of the word heard by the ear. And we have over here the special call. It is internal. Something that happens inside us. It is a work of the Holy Spirit whereby he takes what is heard and he actually applies it home. And it is heard with the soul. We have many illustrations, examples, instances of it throughout Scripture. Here is one of the clearest, perhaps, in the book of Acts. Chapter 16, verse 14. It involves a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul's speaking. Paul's preaching. Paul's proclaiming. That's the general call. It's equivalent to what I'm doing now. But in the case of Lydia, what happened? Something else was going on. The Spirit of God was working internally. And what did the Lord do through the Spirit of God? He opened her heart to pay attention. That is the special call. And so I'll, that's it for slides. I'll, I'll, I'll get right down. I'll cut, I'll cut right to the chase. So here we are gathered in, in this big room right now. And so I'm proclaiming the word of God. Some of you haven't heard a worth thing I've said. Your mind's miles away. Some of you will hear, but it'll kind of, you know, like the, the, the sower who goes out to sow, it'll land there on the road, and then the birds will come away and just snatch it away. You'll hear it now. It'll be gone an hour from now. Some of you will take it, you'll mull it over, maybe your conscience will be pricked a little bit, and, you know, you might, I don't know, toss and turn a little bit tonight in bed, but then you'll just put it away from you. 
But others, you're feeding on it right now. This is your weekly sustenance. The word of God, when the spirit of God takes it and makes it alive internally, applying it to us, whereby your faith is nurtured. See, that is a work of the spirit of God. That is an internal sovereign work of the spirit of God. And that is how we explain that as we sow the word and we proclaim the gospel, some hear and reject and they do so of their own free will. But some receive and they respond and it becomes central to them. Why? It is because of a work of the Spirit of God known as the special call or the effectual call. I want you to notice two marks about this call. The first mark is this. It is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Absolutely necessary. Necessary to salvation. Uh, there's no way around it. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I think the Lord Jesus means what he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You cannot come to God. You cannot obey God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You cannot come to God. You cannot obey God. Thirdly, you cannot please God. Romans chapter 8 verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And fourthly, you cannot know God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What is the problem here? You cannot come. You cannot obey you cannot please God. You cannot even know God. What is the problem? What is the predicament that accounts for this? Paul has already crystallized it. He has made it so clear. Turn with me just for a moment. All the way back to the third chapter. And here Paul traces out the consequences of Adam's original sin. And he compiles a list of Old Testament scriptures, bringing them all together in order to convey in very clear terms our predicament as we stand before God. Look at verse 10, right at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10, right at the end. None is righteous, no, not one. What does Paul go on to say? No one understands. Nobody understands. Understands what? Spiritual truth. We're corrupt in what we think. It doesn't stop there. No one seeks for God. This whole seeker-sensitive movement is nonsense. Because there's no one seeking for God. The natural man does not want God. The natural man is at enmity with God. No one seeks for God. We are corrupt in what we want. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. It literally means useless. No one does good. Not even one. We are corrupt in what we choose. Corrupt in what we think. Corrupt in what we want. Corrupt in what we choose. Hear these words, please. Pay careful attention to these words. The will. My will. Your will. The will always chooses what the mind thinks is best and the heart wants most. Okay? It, it, that, that's very simple. It's very simple. Here it is again. The will, our will, our free will always chooses what the mind thinks best and what the heart wants most. Here's the problem. No one thinks God is best. 
and no one wants God most. Therefore, no one will ever exercise their free will to choose God because they do not want God. We believe in free will. Oh, we uphold free will. Free will is not the problem. As a matter of fact, it is my problem. My problem is my will is free. I am free to do whatever I want. I am free to choose whatever I want. The Bible makes it clear. I never, ever want God because I am in the flesh. I am at enmity with God. Therefore, I will never choose him. Man is dead in his sin. Why doesn't the leopard eat cabbage? It's free to, but it won't. Why? It's against its nature. Why doesn't a sparrow eat beef? It could, but it won't. Why? It's against its nature. Why can't people come to God? Why can't people obey God? Why can't people please God? Why can't people know God? Well, they can in terms of their natural ability. There's nothing stopping them. They can't because they won't. They don't want to. The will is absolutely free, free from all external constraints. There is nothing at this moment outside of anyone impeding them, stopping them, prohibiting them from coming to God. Their problem is their free will. And the fact that their free will is enslaved to a sinful nature. And because they are dead, face down in the water, in their trespasses and sins. They never think God is best, and they most certainly never want God most. Therefore, the special call is absolutely essential. Second fact concerning this call is as follows. It is effectual. It is factual. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called those whom he called, he justified. In other words, they always respond to this call. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Many of you know I have a dog at home. Many of you met my dog, Bailey. And uh, as with any dog, we let her out in the backyard. And the time comes when we want her back inside. And so I'll open the door and I will call to Bailey. My voice goes up a couple octaves, right? I start making silly noises, sometimes mutter things under my breath, which we won't share now. I grab her box of uh, doggy biscuits and start shaking them. What am I doing? What am I doing? I'm calling her. Why am I calling her like that? Because she doesn't want to come in. She's a little too reluctant, right? So what am I trying to do? Coax her. Come on, girl. Come on, girl. Shake those bo that box even louder. Come on, girl. Okay, you got that image clear in your mind? That is not what we're talking about when it comes to the special call. That image in your mind, now completely get rid of it. That has absolutely nothing to do with God's special call. God does not coax us, his people. He does not. This is not even an invitation, folks. It isn't an encouragement. This, this call, this special call, is like Jesus standing in the ship. And the rain is pouring down upon him. The waves are crashing all around him. And the wind is howling right through him. And he calls out, be quiet. And the storm stops. He wasn't coaxing it. He wasn't asking the storm to consider something. It was a commandment. And the storm immediately responded. Well, this special call is like Jesus standing before the demoniac half-crazed, wild man. Self-mutilation. Living among the tombs. There he is, prostrate at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And Christ calls out to the demoniac, to legion, be gone. And the demoniac, the demon, departs. This special call, it's like Jesus standing beside the tomb. 
And inside this tomb, there's a man named Lazarus. His bodily remnants, anyway. He's been dead three, four days. And there he is lying in the tomb. And all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus emerges from the tomb. This call is like God in the beginning. When he declared, let there be light. Let's just wait and think about it and see what happens. There was light. It is a commandment. When the voice of God speaks through the special call, there is a response. There is no begging here. There's no coaxing. There's no pleading. This is a divine command. It is a divine order. It is a special call, says the Lord Jesus. John 6, 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 10, 27, again, the Lord Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The call is absolutely essential, necessary, given our sinful state. And the call is unbelievably powerful. It is effectual. It is the same power by which God spoke into existence the heavens and the earth, whereby he raises a dead, spiritual, dead spiritually speaking individual from their spiritual death, whereby they believe in the Lord Jesus, repent of their sin. And then live a life of new obedience as they pursue this longing of the heart to be like and live like their Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I realize, I know, this creates all sorts of complexities. I know that. And I also know, I've, I've heard the, all the questions. I know I've heard all the questions. I've asked all the questions. I know that. We're going to revisit this next week because we're, we're, as we move, move backwards in this chain, what do we come to? Predestination. As we move even further backwards in the chain, what do we come to? Foreknowledge, which is actually simply a synonym for election. As we get into chapter 9, we're not going to be able to run from the doctrine of election because it permeates the entire chapter and it actually remains kind of forefront right through the end of chapter 11. These are weighty doctrines. These are weighty truths and we must proceed carefully and must proceed cautiously. We need to understand and really take this to heart, the context in which we find them, especially here verses 28 through 30. And we must remember that Paul is speaking here to Christians and Paul is speaking pastorally to Christians. He is speaking to Christians who are suffering. He is speaking to Christians who are suffering and struggling. And perhaps the seeds of doubt and despair starting to germinate and blossom in their hearts. And so he is speaking to them and he wants to give them the greatest comfort he possibly can. And so where does he point them? He points them to God's sovereign grace. He points them to God's sovereignty and he takes God's love into the realm of the eternal. And out he folds, unfolds this golden chain of salvation. He doesn't do so to satisfy our theological curiosity. He doesn't do so so that we can spend evenings arguing and fighting over this. He does so because he is striving and longing to be pastoral. He wants to place our salvation, found our salvation in God and in God alone to remove any doubt at all as to our standing in his sight. Any doubt whatsoever that God won't accomplish what he began in us. And so he is speaking pastorally. You know, it, it really, in many ways, in many ways, I'll qualify this in just a moment. In many ways, this is an in-house doctrine. Do you understand what I mean by that? This is an in-house doctrine. It really is for Christians. It is for Christians, those who have come to the Lord Jesus, to be able to look back and say, you know, there's, there, there was a lot more going on when God saved me than, me, than, than I understood. I thought I was the guy drowning in the water, catching the life preserver. Now I kind of realize I was dead. 
completely dead and I didn't want him and he saved me miraculously and I can look back in time and I can root it. I can root it in his sovereign plans and purposes. I can root it in a sovereign God and therefore I can look ahead and having been justified, I have this absolute certainty I'm glorified and therefore I can go back into verse 28 and I can understand that all things work together for good for those who are called of God, Right? Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It, there's a pastoral bent to this. And it is an in-house doctrine. And I acknowledge it can be a great stumbling block, especially for the unbeliever. And so again, if you fit into that category, I beg of you. I beg of you to, to actually, for a moment, lift your gaze away from what I have been saying. And where as an unbeliever... The Bible calls you to fix your gaze. It is Calvary's cross. There's a mystery here, I know. There's a tension between human capability and divine sovereignty. I know. I know that. I am encouraged. We don't have to be able to resolve everything. There is a tension. But I am encouraging you. This is where God's word exhorts you to look. To look to Calvary's cross. And to behold the love of God poured out at Calvary's cross as he delivers his own son as a redeemer of all who will repent of their sin and believe on him. That's what you need to hear. That's where you need to look. You need to get serious with your own sin, your own standing before God. Yes, your own inability when it comes to choosing God. And you must come to Christ. And you must receive Christ as your only hope under heaven by which you can possibly be saved. That's what you need. Once in, oh, I'm looking for some security. And I want to trace God's love all the way back before the foundation of the world. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. And I want to be able to follow, like, just like a rabbit trail, God's love all the way into eternity, into the future. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. It's in-house. It's for us to bring to us pastoral comfort and solace and reassurance that we stand as Christians in the palm of the hand of Almighty God. And nothing can change that because we have been in the palm of his hand since before the foundation of the world. And his calling of us to salvation, that commandment by which we responded in faith and in repentance is the breaking forth into time, the secret counsel of his will, and the open acknowledgement of those whom the Father gave to the Son even before he created the heavens and the earth. It's a tremendous doctrine. Don't stumble over the doctrine. Don't try to resolve the tension. Do what Paul does. Just flip over to chapter 11. Do what Paul does. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If this doctrine should make us do anything, it should make us fall prostrate before the throne of God and ascribe to him all glory. Why? Because you know, folks, he really is God. And we are merely grasshoppers. And he performs his will in heaven above and on the earth below, and nothing can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Who do we think we are? We are speaking of an infinite God, the great I am. Bow down and worship. I have wrestled with these truths over the years, off and on, sometimes more on than off, sometimes more off than on, but I've wrestled with them. Uh, really, for the last 15, 17, more or less years, the, the truth, this, this special call and God's sovereignty in it has spoken to me at different times in seven different ways, and I want to share these with you. And, and in doing so, I pray that you find yourself at some point relating to at least one of these, if not all of these. All right, you with me? You understand? Seven ways in which this truth has spoken to me over the years, still speaks to me. And I hope you can relate to some of these. Here we go. On occasion... And I've alluded to this already. It has corrected me. 
It has corrected me. Matthew 22, verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. What am I going to do with that? Many are called. That is the general call. Proclamation of the gospel go out to all. But few are chosen. That is divine election made actual in our experience. Many are called, but few are chosen. I struggle with that for many years as a teenager into my 20s. Why? Because I insisted, I insisted that we must accommodate divine sovereignty to human capability. I have since learned that the opposite is true. We must accommodate human capability to divine sovereignty. The time came when I had to surrender my philosophical presuppositions. I just had to surrender them, my philosophical presuppositions, namely the notion that I possess the power of self-determination. The notion that I possess the power of ultimate self-determination. Do you know what that was equivalent to? I had to surrender the notion that I was God. That's what it came down to. I had to surrender the notion that I was God. Surrender the notion that I possess the power of ultimate self-determination. On occasion, these verses, this truth has challenged me. I can think of one season in my life in particular. Here are the words of 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be all the more diligent to make your calling, that is the special calling, and election sure. In my younger years, I subscribed to what is known as free grace theology. Um, Simply put, according to free grace theology, Saving faith is a singular act through which one experiences the grace of God. I'll repeat it, and I'll try to explain it. According to free grace theology, saving faith is viewed, is perceived as a single act through which one experiences the grace of God. So saving faith, in other words, is simply a decision, Right? I made a decision that was saving faith, a singular act in time. That is free grace theology. What has it allowed for and what has it created? The monstrosity known as American evangelicalism is what it's created. Where we have countless numbers of people running around, filling our churches, living pretty much however they please. They look like the world, they dress like the world, they talk like the world, they smell like the world. But brother, I'm saved because I made a decision. Why? Because faith is perceived, saving faith is perceived as a single act in a moment of time by which one receives God's saving grace. What happens after that? It doesn't matter. Then we invented the whole category known as what? A carnal Christian. I, this, is, this, is weir- this is so weary. It is so weary, my friends, and it is so troubling. I- I'm gonna, I'll belabor it because perhaps I'm just speaking to one person here right now. I'm tired of cultural Christianity. The cultural Christians, there are a dime a dozen in these parts. Dime a dozen. Cultural Christians. Casual Christians. Pretty much living... I mean, indiscernible from the world, right? But convinced. Oh, challenge them otherwise. We are in for a dogfight. Absolutely convinced they are saved. Why? Because they made a decision at one point in time, a single act of faith by which they think they have received God's saving grace. Oh, understand this, my friend. The special call of God does not produce merely a single act of faith. It produces an attitude of faith. That is a world of difference. It does not produce an act of faith. Yes, it begins. A decision starts it off. I don't doubt that. 
Right now, if you're not a Christian, right now decide this day whom you will serve. It is a decision. But please understand the decision is not the end of it. It is simply the first mark of what? An attitude of what? Faith. The just shall live. Live what? Their entire lives. By what? Faith. Oh, this how this has corrected, corrected me in my younger years. Again, hear it. By the special call. God does not produce an act of faith, but an attitude of faith by which we are saved. Thirdly, it has motivated me on occasion. Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy of the calling. It is a calling to holiness. It's a calling to goodness. In the context of Romans 8, what is it? Paul states it explicitly there in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is his purpose. Now go back to the end of verse 28. Those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose is to make us like the Lord Jesus. We are exhorted in Ephesians 4.1 to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let me personalize it first. No accusatory tone because this was my struggle in my late teens, early 20s. This inconsistency between the profession and the life, the life I lived. And, and, and verses like this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What have I been called to? I've been called to glory. I've been called to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Then pray tell, why am I still treating salvation like it is some sort of toy out of McDonald's Happy Meal? Am I speaking to someone here? And you're calling yourself a Christian. You have no business calling yourself a Christian. If you treat the Christian faith as if it were nothing more than a toy out of a happy meal. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, that sounds rather legalistic. No, my friend, that is grace in action. That is the life of a man, a life of a woman who really gets grace who really understands what they've been saved from, really understands what Christ did as he hung upon Calvary's cross. And now they can cry like the Apostle Paul, for me to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'll take it one step further. If I can't say that, what business do I have actually even thinking I believe in the Lord Jesus? I mean, really? If I can't say for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What I believe in Jesus, well, what exactly do, am I believing in? I, I, don't, I, just can't, I just can't reconcile the two. Oh, the need, oh, what a, what a motivation this has been to me, this calling. And understanding that by divine, sovereign grace, I have been made one with the Lord Jesus. And I have now been called to mirror the likeness of Christ. How dare I continue to revel in sexual immorality? How dare I? How dare I continue down a path, just a life riddled with dishonesty and deceit? How dare I continue to revel in drunkenness and drugs and partying, all the while claiming and proclaiming the name of Christ? I'm a Christian. God is forgiving. You just forgive me. I've forgiven myself. Oh, it is gibberish of the highest order, my friends. It is complete and utter nonsense. We are called the calling. It is a heavenly calling. It is a holy calling. We are one with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as Christians, we are called to look like him. To walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Oh, many times it has encouraged me. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up 
on the last day. Oh, what an encouragement. That the Father gave to the Son a people even before the foundation of the earth. And that the Holy Trinity covenanted even before the foundation of the earth to glorify himself, the Godhead, in the redemption of this people and the glorification of this people. The Son willingly coming as an expression of his love for the Father and his earnestness for the glory of the Father, giving himself willingly for this people purchasing them with his precious blood and this great assurance and certainty that those whom the Father gave to him, none will be lost. I will lose nothing of all that he has given me. Not one. Not one sheep is going to get out of the fold. I will raise them all up on the last day. I believe God chose me from all eternity. I believe he predestined me to share in the glory of his son. I believe he called me out of death into life, enabling me to believe in Christ. That said, I am absolutely convinced he will finish what he started. Oh, what a great encouragement this has been to me over the year. Fifth response is this. This truth has humbled me. Perhaps not as much as it should, but I'm still growing. I'm a work in progress. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? You put a big zero down. What do you have that you did not receive? Oh, it completely rules out boasting because it implies a dependence on God for the provision of salvation on the cross and the application of salvation to my heart. Most get the first part. They trip over the second part. They restrict God's grace to the provision made for my salvation upon Calvary's cross. It's only half of the story. The other half is what? God's grace in applying that salvation to me. I have done nothing to contribute to it. What do you have that you did not receive? Sixth response is this. I have been compelled 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, says Paul. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which in Christ Jesus goes with eternal glory. The only reason I preach is because I believe in God's special call. The only reason I, I get up here Sunday after Sunday is because I believe in God's special call. The only reason I proclaim the gospel is because I believe in God's special call. I am absolutely convinced that when God's word is proclaimed, he will save people. I am so relieved it doesn't depend on my eloquence. I am so relieved it doesn't depend on me persuading people. I'm so relieved it doesn't depend on how smart people are or how good people are or how much they're seeking Because if it depended on any of those things, guess what? No one would ever be saved. It depends on God from beginning to end. And oh, how that compels me to preach. Says one preacher, this is the dynamite of God in the hard places of world evangelization. This is the dynamite of God in the hard places of world evangelization. We met as elders this past week. It was a precious time. Great to meet with them. A young couple we, we hope to, to adopt them here as missionaries, ministering in Somalia, right? 100% Muslim, right? I know Brian was sitting there and Cody and Randy, the rest of us were sitting there. And um, you're thinking, boy, okay, wow. We'll pray for you. Yes, we'll pray for you because that's the most we can do. Pray that God would be pleased in one of the hardest places of world evangelization to exercise his sovereign grace and thank him that it's not going to depend on how clever this couple is or how long this couple is able to stick it out or what it is this couple do, the successes or failures they have or the the people there in Somalia who just happen to be sensitive seekers looking for the Lord. No, it's going to depend on God. And God will call his people. God will save his people. And how this compels me to be what? Simply faithful. It's all you have to be with your neighbor. It's all you have to be with your unsaved spouse. It's all you have to be with your unsaved colleague or neighbor. Just be faithful. 
Seek to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of your calling in the Lord. Seek to walk in a manner worthy before them. And seek to testify to God's saving grace in your life. And yes, proclaim the gospel and be compelled and be reassured that salvation is of the Lord. And here's number seven. Takes me back. The verse I already referenced, Romans eleven thirty six. 36. At times this truth has overwhelmed me. Overwhelmed me. Romans eleven thirty six, Or from him, from God. He's the effectual cause, the efficient cause. And through him, he's the instrumental cause. And to him, he is the final cause. This world is but a stage upon which God displays his glory. That's all that's going on here, folks. This world, from beginning till now, is simply a stage. It is a stage on which God has chosen to reveal his glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me ask you where I began. Are you, were you, when God saved you, uh, the drowning man reaching out for the life preserver? Or were you the dead man face down in the water into whom the Lord Jesus Christ, by the spirit of life, breathed life. And having done so, enabled you to believe in the Lord Jesus, not a single act in time, but an attitude of heart by which you cleave to him. And repent of your sin for the salvation of your soul. Oh, my friends, give God the glory. Worship the Almighty. Because he alone is seated and enthroned in majesty. And his will is done on earth below as it is in heaven above. And with that, let us pray. Our Father, we prostrate ourselves before your throne this day. And we worship you. We acknowledge our Father that when it comes to who you are, and your works among us, there is an element of mystery. You have revealed yourself and your ways and your works insofar as it pleases you. We pray that we might be faithful with that revelation. We pray that we might be comfortable with certain questions unanswered. We pray that we might be comfortable with certain tensions unresolved that we may stay close and fast and faithful to your word. And we pray, our Father, this day we might revel and delight in your gospel, that there is indeed salvation in the Lord Jesus for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who will receive him, who will turn from their sin, turn to you through him, the great high priest, the one mediator between God and man, in whose name we pray. Amen.